0: We're Mistio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. Well, before we turn to Revelation chapter two, we're going to be finishing up chapter two uh, as we are looking at this, is our fourth letter to the seven churches. So we have three more coming up in the following weeks. Before we turn there, I just want to let you know we did the floors this past week in the classrooms over here. I was going to get a before and after picture, but it took a long time to try to find the before picture. So I would just say, go over and take a look at it after this. Uh, It looks great. Anthony did most of the work. Steve and Andrew came by and helped out as well. Uh, It started on last Sunday, so after we gathered together, Andrew and Anthony and myself were there, and then a a guy came up, just kind of wandered through the campus, and uh, approached actually Andrew first, and started talking with him, and I guess he said he came, he saw there was a church building, and he came to see if he can get some guidance, and so I saw Andrew talking to this guy, and I saw Anthony working on laying floors, and I said, I'm going to go talk to this guy with Andrew, and so... (laughs) Anthony uh, did most of the work that day, um, but Andrew was doing the work of the Lord as well, and and just engaging with this young man and having a good conversation with him and talking to him about Jesus and sharing the good news. And through this conversation, uh, there were two problems that this young man, he's about 27 years old, had with what we were saying. Uh, two problems he has with with the story of the Bible, actually, with. Christianity, with with the faith that we hold to. Uh, One problem is, and you've heard this a lot, I'm sure, and maybe you've asked this question, I know I have, how can a good God allow such terrible things to happen in this world? It's a really good question. Uh, And then the second thing, as we progressed through this conversation, and as we were doing our best to share good news with him, uh, the, the second issue he had was how could God forgive me? With all the stuff that I've done, I just can't believe that God would be able to forgive me. And you see what's happening there, right? Is his problem with what's wrong with the world, he actually rightly sees himself as part of that. And at the same time, his problem with, why would God allow all this, this, evil and wickedness to happen in the world, what he wasn't connecting to is like, oh, if God's going to stop that, that means he's got to put a stop to me. And so we did our best to try to kind of walk him through some of the story and explain a little bit about how God actually created us at the very beginning of all things in his image to be these walking representations of him. We talk about this a lot at Missio, but it was his first time hearing that, that he created us to actually rule alongside him over his creation made in his image being his ambassadors his royal ambassadors we were called to rule and reign over all of creation through his power as his representatives and so god actually gave a lot of power to these humans to this creature so what happens when those humans rebel right they when they rebel They give up a little bit of that power, but they also use what God gave them and distort. And so instead of being fruitful and multiplying other image bearers of God who would rule and reign with grace and with love and with goodness, we are fruitful and multiplying wickedness and violence and selfishness and oppression and injustice and division. And instead of ruling over and caring for this world, we we bring destruction to it. We bring hardship to it. And so we try to explain to him, we're just as much a part of this as you are. How could God forgive you? Because he's forgiven me even, right? And that what God is trying to do is he's being very patient because if he were to put a stop to that rebellion completely back then and there, we wouldn't even exist today, the three of us who are having this conversation and everyone in this room. And if God were to put a stop to that wickedness today, what that means is he's putting a stop to you and I today. But God is a patient God who is patiently working a plan to bring restoration to all the world, to all of creation. And that includes restoring you and I into our rightful position as co heirs and rulers with him. Isn't that crazy? And that's the story of the Bible. And that's the story that we find when we read this letter in Revelation 2. A letter to Thyatira, I think, as Anthony said, I don't, I don't know really how to pronounce it either. We're going with that guess. Today, it's pronounced Thyatira. Turn with me to Revelation chapter two. We're gonna read verses 18 through the end of the chapter, verse 29. What does God to do with these little rulers who have rebelled against him, right? Jesus says this to John, write to the angel, the messenger of the church in Thyatira. Thus says the son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts and I will give to each of you according to your works. I will say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I'm not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Father, we have ears, help us to hear what your spirit is saying to us even still today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you remember, this letter is being passed around throughout seven churches scattered about Asia Minor. Now, these are seven specific churches, seven specific places where specific real-life people lived during that specific time. And yet, the number seven, as most numbers in the Hebrew culture has meaning and significance beyond mathematical use. Uh, it's, a, it's a number that means wholeness and completion. And so the letter, very intentionally being written to seven churches in a real place, also, because it's to seven, has this significance that it's to the church, to all of the church. And what would happen is this island that John was on patmos as he sends this letter over to ephesus first would have been the first stop it was actually following this roman road trade route and so it would go through this little circle along the same order of the churches that were reading these letters through but what would happen is as the letters pass through each one would get the collection of letters So they would read all of this. And so all of these churches, Thyatira, Pergamum, Sardis, Smyrna, Ephesus, Philadelphia, Laodicea, all of these churches would be reading everyone's mail and going, oh, this is for us too. And in the same way, we're reading their mail now and saying, isn't this still for us today? Right? And so this would get passed around. And I wanted to take last week's message, and this week's, and really combine them. Because they're almost the same word, right? The letter to Pergamum, we were dealing with, they were following in the ways of an older prophet's teaching, one who had lived hundreds and hundreds of years before they were alive, Balaam and Balak. They they were following in those ways, and eating meat sacrificed to idols, and living in sexual immorality. And now we're hearing the same thing. Hey, you're following in an older ruler's ways, Jezebel which we'll get to in a moment, and and you're following those ways of, he names the same two things, eating meat, sacrifice to idols, and sexual immorality. And so I wanted to just kind of take those, like here's the same message, right? Or just skip this one this week even. Uh, But I wonder if all those cities, all those churches, all those communities, reading this twice was necessary because it was that important. And oftentimes in the Bible and what we find in ancient Hebrew, Jewish, and Greek literature is when something's repeated, they didn't have like on your computer, on your pages or Word document where you just highlight it and bold it, right? You couldn't underline it. So what would they do? They would repeat it to show, hey, this is important. Listen up. And so I wonder if we need to repeat this again too. Don't worry, I'll do my best to not make it word for word the same sermon as last week, okay? But, but we need to hear the same message again. And so the letter follows the same format where Jesus introduces himself in a certain way. And every way he does that, it's contextual. So Pergamum last week, this was a large city and it was a kind of high society city. They were kind of in the higher class. It was a white collar city, Right? Thyatira, this is a much smaller city, and it's a lower-class city. It's a blue-collar city. In Pergamum, you had people who were high society, making money and living comfortably, and they were in power. And in Thyatira, you had guilds of works people. So guilds are kind of like, think about unions today, right? So you would have a union for, like, welders. uh, But this was kind of like that. They had a guild, a trade guild, And they all kind of settled in the city Thyatira. And so if you were someone who was a bronze burnisher, you were someone who who made things out of bronze, you went to Thyatira and you joined the bronze guild. And what would happen in these guilds is a lot of idol worshiping. A lot of worshiping of the gods of their day. So not only would they get together and do their work together, but they would also get together and they would celebrate together. And they would get together and they would have feasts together. And the reason they would have these feasts was much more significant than just coming and hanging out and having a neighborhood barbecue. But it was, we're going to eat this food that we have sacrificed to our gods so that the gods will approve of us and establish the work of our hands, so to speak, so that we'll do well. So God shows up. Jesus, in this letter, he says, Tell them this. This is what the Son of God says. This is significant because most of the time when Jesus gives himself a title, he uses Son of what? Son of man, right? Son of man, meaning Jesus had come in the flesh to identify with humanity. He was taking on the role of human to be the one true perfect human, perfect Israelite who would fulfill all the things that God was calling Israel to do. In this case, he goes, I I wanna remind you about also who else I am, the son of God. Now, when we use that term or we hear that term, we might think about like, father, son, or or mother, son, like parent and child, we think about, oh, you're you're underneath this person because mom, dad, they're in charge, right? But that's not the way this was used in their language. Uh, When someone's called like a son of encouragement in the Bible, that just means not that you're less than an encourager. It actually means you're fully embodying encouragement to me right now. It's a class association, So you are one of, you are one with, you are like. And so Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I have come from God. I am one with God. I am the son of God. Who's the ruler here? Who's in charge? He's establishing this authority right now. And he introduces himself as the one who's got these fiery eyes and feet with fine bronze, which is just like a weird image and kind of scary. It's like the stuff of nightmares, right? But he's establishing this authority for one. And two, again, contextualizing. You got these, this trade guild there that's working with bronze. And, and they're lighting up this fire to, to work with the metals in. And Jesus is saying, I am that fire who will mold and shape and purify. And my feet have been purified as I came to this dirty, broken earth and walked it. And as they were nailed to that cross, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. Right away, Jesus is establishing this incredible authority, but he sandwiches this letter. He bookends it. At the end, he talks about, Those who are faithful, he says this in verse 24. I say to the rest in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the so-called secrets of Satan, as I say, I'm not putting another burden on you. Only hold to what you have until I come. The one who conquers, who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over all nations. The one who has authority is trying to reestablish our authority alongside him. This is the context Jesus comes with in this letter. And again, following that format of the letters, so Christ introduced himself and then he commends them. And this is what he says back at the top again. Verse 19, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. Now that sounds like a good church. That sounds like a community I want to be a part of. I mean, listen to this. Their their love their faithfulness to one another, to the teachings of the apostles, their service to others, their endurance even in hardship. If that's like a community I see in the city today, I'm like, sign me up. I want to be a part of that church. Right? Isn't isn't that the kind of church we're looking for to be a part of? It sounds like it checks all the boxes too, doesn't it? He even says this. He goes, I know that your last works are greater than the first. So he's saying, you're even getting better as you go. Like you don't have this mission drift, right? Where you started off really solid, like this is what we're about and this is how we're gonna follow Jesus. And somewhere along the way, you get distracted and veer off course. No, no, he's saying, you're actually growing in that. You're getting better, you're improving. The way you serve other people now looks even more phenomenal than the way you served people back then when you started. And Jesus is sincere in this commending of them, like, good work, good job. To be faithful to what is true about Scripture, about who Jesus is, about God, and to hold love with that and serve other people. The world that we live in today, when it seems like if you're going to be a part of church, it's going to be one or the other, Right? It seems like you're either in the, the progressive camp where you just love people, but you kind of throw out truth, or you're in the like, uh, the kind of old school conservative camp where you're just like, no, no, it's, it's about the truth, but you're a jerk to everybody else. Like, it's not really truth. No, no, it's, it's holding these things together. What a beautiful church. What a beautiful picture of what I hope this church is. And I'm sure you share that hope right along with me. And I see that often in us, by the way. As I read through this, I thought of Missio quite a bit. So sign me up for that church. If you close the letter right there, you're like, man, they nailed it. They did it. The Spirit's empowering them, and they're walking with Jesus. But there's more to the letter. And he says in verse 20, but. Just think about that for a second. Like if you were to kind of close your eyes and imagine what letter would Jesus write to Missio right now? Or personalize it. What letter would Jesus write to me right now? And be honest, like there's gonna be areas where he's gonna commend you. There's areas you're doing a great job But a butt is going to come in there. It's going to butt its way in, and he has something else to say. But I have this against you. What's he going to confront us with? For Thyatira, same as Pergamum, right? So he goes back to a lot, a lot of. Uh, theologians have thought, well, maybe there's like another Jezebel here, or maybe it's they're using the name Jezebel to apply to another Jezebel-like person here now. But the point is, as he did in the last letter, he's reminding them of something in their story, in their history, they would have known really well, right? They knew the story of Balaam really well. And they also probably even better knew the story of Jezebel. And you can find that story in 1 Kings starting in chapter 19, I believe, I could have that a little off. But Jezebel married Ahab. He was the king over the northern tribe of Israel. And Jezebel, she was not an Israelite. So she marries in because this was a political move. It was a strategy for King Ahab. That if he can marry a foreigner, someone of royal status from another nation, then he's building a treaty of peace with that nation, right? And so it wasn't doing it. It, out of love, like we would in our day, right? And, and it wasn't doing it out of honoring God, Yahweh. It was doing it to build political power for Israel. And she comes in and she brings all of her nations and her people's gods with her. And then she ends up having this huge sway. This, the odd part in that is King Ahab, thinking he's gonna marry for political power, actually gives his power over to Jezebel. She ends up running the show. She ends up having all this sway over Ahab. Does that sound familiar from the story of the Bible that we know? That when you're promised this power, that actually you're, you're being subverted and you're handing your power over, like in the garden. If you eat from this, you will actually be like God. But they were already made in God's image. And reaching for more power, they actually gave their power over to the lies of the serpent. Ahab is doing the same thing with a new snake, Jezebel. And she comes in and not only does she get power over him, but then she starts leading all of Israel astray and she gets them to worship her gods and to eat the food that they sacrificed to her gods. And just like Balaam had done before, she entices them with Relationships outside of marriage and outside of the context of what God called them to between a man and a woman who are in the family of God together. And it brings destruction and wreaks havoc throughout the whole nation. And it seems like a similar thing is happening here because not only when they would go to these guild feasts and they would eat this food sacrificed to gods, that wasn't the only thing that took place there. And I know we have children in here, so I'm gonna try to be delicate with this. But they they would get excessive with their passions at these feasts. And it didn't matter if it was a man and a woman, or a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, and it didn't matter if it was your spouse or not, it was a free for all. That was the culture. And that was accepted. And not only was it accepted, it was celebrated because that was a way that you were actually pleasing their gods. So they're repeating these same sins that happened in the days of Jezebel. Here's the hard part about this. We don't have guilds in the same way. We don't have feasts, but we have that in our faces every single day, don't we? And for them, part of their part of their challenge was, well, if I'm not part of this guild, how am I going to take care of myself? How am I gonna provide for my family? Being part of this guild is kind of what establishes my place in my work. So they had that challenge, but we don't, we don't share that, but we do share the same challenge where this image of desire is placed in front of us constantly, like 24 four seven. I remember when I was probably around nine, my family took a little trip to Las Vegas, because, you know, that's a great family outing, right? And so we went to Las Vegas, and we're walking the, the strip at night. And as we're walking by, uh, there's these guys who are handing out flyers. And they were flyers for call girls and escorts. And as we're walking by, they're literally pushing it on everybody. And they, they give it to my seven-year-old brother. They force it into his hand. Like, they literally grab his hand and stick it in his chest and put his hand over it. So my dad immediately grabbed it and threw it away. And we're like, what was that, dad? And he's like, don't worry about it. And then we saw it laying on the ground. We're like, oh, that's what that was. Now, our kids, you, me, we have these digital flyers, so to speak, being pushed on us every single day on these screens that we carry around in our pockets. And they're usually much worse. Uh, one of my sons this week we had to have a conversation because he was doing something innocent on the iPad and he was watching a Minecraft video but he on YouTube and he clicked on a link in the description thinking he was going to download some Minecraft skins i don't know what that means if you know minecraft you probably know what that means uh but he's doing something innocent and it took him to something not so innocent it was a deception right it was a trick and it was a trap And he saw something he should not have seen at his age. And we had a conversation together and it was a great conversation. And we tried to do it in a way where it wasn't bringing shame on him because he didn't do anything. But there's gonna be days where he does that intentionally, right? And I still don't wanna heap shame on him. But what I wanna do is I wanna tell him, hey, that desire you have it can actually be met in a much better way. There's something better. Turn with me to James chapter one real quick. I have it on the screen actually. James recognized a lot of what was going on in the human condition from the very beginning since the garden. And in James chapter one, starting verse 14, he says this. First, he, he's, the context is he's telling people, Hey, don't, don't assume and don't blame God for when you go astray. Do you remember in the garden, like after they did eat from that tree and God shows up and he's like, Hey, what happened? What'd you do? And the man's like, Well, it's the woman you gave me, God, pointing blame like double ways. <laughs> And then the woman says, well, it's this serpent that you allowed in the garden, God. James is saying, hey, when you sin, when you're led away by temptation, don't blame this on God because God cannot tempt us. He doesn't do that. But he says this, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. I used to rap, uh, and I, I wrote a song that had that in there. Because like, when desire sets in, it gives birth to sin, which in turn it gives birth to death. I won't do the whole song for you, but uh, that one stuck with me. It stuck with me because of that, that pattern and that output, that following. This evil desire leading to sin, which leads to death. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Desire itself is not sin. When the first man and the first woman are being deceived in the garden, it says they saw that the fruit was desirable. That tree had been there all along. From what we're told about the garden, that tree and the tree of life were central in the garden. They would have seen it all the time as they go to eat from the tree of life. It didn't become desirable in that moment for the first time ever. But when they allowed that to lure them away and entice them, when the serpent's words used that to entice them to go another direction than what God had said, that's when it impregnated, their desire became impregnated and it conceived, James says. And it gave birth to the action of sin. And so they grab the fruit, and that's when thats when sin takes place, and they eat from it. Listen, I, I don't want to heap shame on us today, is what I'm saying, because you have these desires, right? Because it's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere you look. And even if you get rid of your smartphone and go to a flip phone, you're still gonna see it on billboards now. Even if you get rid of your TV, even, you're just gonna see it on somebody walking down the street. These desires are gonna be there. And I think what I was taught is to grow up living in the shame that I was walking around in the sin 24 seven constantly. And I don't think that's what Jesus or James was saying. But when you allow that desire, get twisted by a lie and you allow that to entice you and lure you away from what God has called you to and you act on that desire in a way that is twisted and distorted from what God created that's sin and then when you continue to walk in that pattern of sin long enough it will eventually give birth to death and destruction and that's what Jesus says he goes listen i have given her Time to repent. Isn't that incredible? With Jezebel, verse 21, I gave her time to repent. Just stop and think about that for a second. The words we said to our friend we met last Sunday, God is a patient God. He patiently was giving time for this rebellion of Jezebel, for them to come back and repent. But eventually you walk in that pattern of sin long enough and it brings destruction. So he says, but she does not want to repent. That means turn away from her sexual morality. So look, I'll throw her into a sickbed. It's like a deathbed. And those who commit adultery along with her into great pain or affliction. He goes on to just talk about those who follow her ways, her children, so to speak. Remember, this is not a, uh, the way a father son, relationship. Remember the son of God is a class of, he's saying when you're becoming one with the ways of Jezebel, they'll die too. That sin eventually leads you to death and destruction. That's heavy, I know. But here's the good news. Because what do we do with that, right? We, We have these desires, how do we fight it? How do we turn away from that and turn back to what God said? Paul says, take every thought captive. In that moment of desire, we take that thought captive. What if, what if the first man and first woman had said to one another, like the serpent's talking to them, they look, they see the tree's desirable, and they go, wait a second. We know that God has given us everything else in this garden to eat from. And we don't have to take from that tree even though it looks desirable because this tree of life right here we can eat freely from and it actually will bring us more pleasure. And we get to live forever with God and not only with him, but rule alongside him. We don't have to try to take this position of being like God because he's already made us to rule alongside him. Could you imagine what would have happened then? That would have been no sin. What if when you have that desire and you have the lies of the snake trying to twist it and entice you to do something different with that desire than God designed, what if you could stop yourself in that moment and say, wait a second, wait a second. I don't need to go there. I don't need to eat from that tree because I know that God actually has provided something better for me. I know that he designed my body. He knows what I desire. He knows the passions I have, but he actually knows a better way for those to be met. Listen, guys, let's talk about sexual immorality here. God created sex, and it's good. He made it good. The thing He called humans to do to be fruitful and multiply, to make more image bearers, the way He had them do it was not a job, He made it enjoyable. This is a good God. He knows your desires and he knows how to meet them better than anyone or anything else can in this world. But when we twist those and we try to take it into our own hands, it will lead to death. So the good news is Jesus steps into that for us. In that moment of desire, he steps in. He stepped into that moment in history. When we could have continued this pattern of sin and all humans would have been led to death, Jesus steps in and not only that, he goes to the sickbed that Jezebel deserved. He goes to his deathbed in the grave on our behalf. He steps into that. That's the good news we confront our desires with. That's the good news we remind ourselves in in that moment of temptation that Jesus is better, and Jesus came, and he ruled and reigned over sin itself, and every way that we've been tempted, he's been tempted, and he overcame. He did not subvert and give his authority over to sin. He overcame, and now he's called us to be conquerors alongside with him, and it's actually possible because his spirit lives and reigns within us, and here's the good news. When you do that, he says, he says, verse 26, I will give to those who conquer authority over the nations, then he quotes Psalm 2. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. That's Psalm 2, verse nine, and it's talking about the Messiah. The words spoken about the Messiah who would come and rule over all nations, rule over all creation. Jesus then turns around and says, hey, come do this with me come rule alongside me. Master your own desires with the power of my spirit in you and then come rule over all of creation with me. That's what we're invited into. Jesus says, just as I have received this from my father, I will also give to you. That should remind us of in Matthew 28, before Jesus goes to ascend to be with the Father, and he calls his followers, he calls his disciples to engage in this mission he's invited them into. And he says this, he says, all authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me from the Father. And now he's saying, just as that's been given to me, give to you. Restoring our place as rulers with God being one with him, sons and daughters of God, being a class associated with him. Not because we're great, but because he made us in his image. Not because we've tried hard enough, but because Jesus has conquered on our behalf. And now his spirit in us allows us to conquer too. Church, we have been faithful in a lot of ways. We serve a lot of people. We love one another well. We can check all those boxes. But... But whatever desires that we have been allowing the enemy to twist and lure us away with, we need to give that over to Jesus today. Amen? So that we can actually find eternal life with him. Would you pray with me?